Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Bible study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Longman um, for our podcast. I think, I think this might be session 33. I'm not sure. Yep. Is that right? <laughs> Somebody's keeping up with it. Um, we will start as usual with just Q&A. Any questions about anything? Welcome, Ken and Mike <laughs> and Ted. We borrowed them from the men's Bible study because they're off due to COVID this week, right? Um, yeah, I think somebody had a COVID exposure, and so Matt Bolte. Matt Bolte, yeah. So, um, no questions. Ah, wow. Children's program is next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Children's Christmas program. You want to be here for that. Um, and 5.30, we have, from 5.30 6.45, we have a um, soup and sandwich supper. It'll be in the Life Center, hosted by the elders, so come join us for a meal. That's the one and only we're doing this Advent season. We'll, hopefully, when we get to Lent, hopefully, we'll be able to, to kind of crank those back up and do our soup suppers before each of the midweek services. Um, who knows what Omicron has in store for us. But um, All right, so we'll start with... a. Um, a devotion, this is again from the book By Faith Alone, uh, which is a series of devotions written by Martin Luther. Um, and today's passage is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already with God in the beginning, and everything came into existence through Him. And the title of this is The Word is God. John wrote about the majesty and divine nature of our dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a profound way. John said that Christ in his divine essence is the word of the eternal father. And if the word existed from the beginning before anything was created, then it must follow that this word is God. We can easily draw this conclusion. Whatever had its existence before the creation of the world must be God because only the creator can exist separate from creation. Everything that exists is either creator or creation. It's either God or creature. Through John, the Holy Spirit stated that in the beginning, the word already existed and everything came into existence through him. And so for this reason, we can never think of the word as something created. The word is eternal. No one can deny or disprove the conclusion that this word is God. This passage establishes that Christ is God. And on the basis of this fact, we believe and know with certainty that Mary gave birth to our Lord and Savior and that he is true and natural God, born in eternity by the Father. This is why he can't be considered an angel. Instead, he is the Lord and creator of angels and all other creatures. As Paul states, he created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Colossians 1.16. Now, we know that Holy Scripture is God's Word and will last forever. Scripture clearly states that the Word existed in the beginning before anything was created and that the Word made everything. So it follows that believers can't hold any other opinion or come to any other conclusion. The Word was not created or made, but already existed from eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word and to be fed by it and built up by it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us today as we study it, to open the eyes of our hearts so that we would 
um, understand and know the truth that you want us to take from it. Be with us as we study, guide and lead our conversation. We ask it all uh, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, you should have a sheet that has the number 13 up in the top corner. I think we've answered the first four questions, and it only took us two weeks to do that. Um, <laughs> so we're going to pick up there. Um, we're, I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 11 to you just so we've got some context. Keep in mind that the really the passages that we're looking at are the last few verses here, verses 15 through 19. Um, I'll give you this from a little different translation. Uh, we've used this some before, Christian Standard Bible. Then I was given a measuring reed, like a rod, with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it, because it's given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes in their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the states and to all those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. When the temple of God in heaven was opened, then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and severe hail. Here ends the reading. Um, thoughts, questions, comments, observations, anything that jumped out at you? It does sound like a movie a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, where's Indiana Jones? <laughs> so 
the second chunk of that, beginning of verse 15, we kind of walk through some of the imagery that's going on there. You know, we get this, this moment where we're kind of brought back into heaven and to, to the throne room to see the rejoicing of the saints there and all that kind of stuff as the end is, is coming. So whom do the 24 elders represent? And we talked about this in chapter 4, which is about a million years ago. Um, but who are the 24 elders and what do they represent? They're the saints. Okay, they're, well, they're the saints, but they have actually, there's a little more specific meaning to it. Remember? 24 is an, an, an odd number. Say, so prophets and... Yeah, so mostly where that comes from, remember numbers are important in, in Revelation, right? 12 is an important number because you've got 12 tribes of Israel and you've got 12 apostles. And 12 and 12 is 24. So they represent the entire church the saints of both testaments. Um, the Concordia Commentary on Revelation says the number 24 is best explained as the elders or the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel who represent before God, um, before God's heavenly throne saints from the Israel of old and then the 12 apostles who represent the saints from the Israel of the New Testament period. Remember we talked about how Paul kind of redefined what Israel means. So in Old Testament times, Israel was seen as all those who were descended from Abraham. They were the chosen people of God. When Christ comes, he gathers all people to himself and he reaches out through Paul to the Gentiles as well. And so Paul talks about Israel in a different way because what he means when he says Israel is not those who are descended from Abraham, what he means is all of those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and are part of the church because they have this faith in Christ, which um, biblically I think is the point all along is that Israel, the chosen people of God, is everybody who comes to faith, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Well, then they've been scattered all over the country too. Yeah. In Old Testament times. Yeah. They weren't really Israelites anymore. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. Yeah, it's called the diaspora, which is literally the scattering. Um, so the Jews, even in, at that time, had been scattered, um, certainly even more so now. Thoughts on that? Questions? So the 24 elders, question number six, praised Jesus for possessing total authority over the universe. Uh, verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. At what great event did Jesus claim that authority and what was his message to the disciples? And if somebody would look up Luke 24, verses 50 to 53, and Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And let's see what those say. Anybody got Luke 24, 50 to 53? And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Okay. And then Matthew 28, 18 through 20. <clears throat> this will be real familiar.
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Cool. So what was the event where Jesus claimed this authority? The ascension. The ascension, right. And what was his message? Baptize and teach. Yeah, you spread the word, right? <laughs> you got to go out, make disciples of all nations. How do you do it? Baptizing and teaching. That's how we do that. Um, we're going to talk a, a little bit later on about this phraseology that the elders used in their who is and who was. Okay, so just park that in the back of your mind. Um, somebody reads Psalm 2, and, and while they do, I want you to think about how that um, compares to Revelation eleven eighteen, which was the nations were angry and your wrath has come. So would somebody read Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Cool. Um, just a little note. I've got a couple of notes on that but one of my favorites verse 11 serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling um this is from dr seleska who was my professor for psalms and writings just a terrific guy but um his point was note the disjointed disjointed emotions here rejoice with trembling or dread right i mean and there's no way to get around these conflicting emotions but when you try to describe the appropriate stance before Yahweh, that's a pretty good way to do it, isn't it? That, that you stand before God in fear, but also joy. And so there's all kinds of stuff swirling around, which I think is sort of interesting. All right, so how does that psalm uh, that John read relate to or compare to Revelation eleven eighteen, which says, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, basically, that's Psalm 2, isn't it? They just rephrased it. Right, yeah. I mean, it, it's a lesson that the, the people in the Old Testament, and matter of fact, the new people of the New Testament have a hard time with it, too. Right. They get successful, they, get successful, they forget about God, God comes down. 
Yeah. Pay attention. Yeah, right. Right. It's it sort of draws your attention back to God as the ultimate authority. Because we tend to get real focused on kind of whatever's right in front of us and in our own little world and and you know get all focused on you know I mean I don't know maybe recently there's been some focus on politics and stuff you know things like that. <laughs> but but you know a lot of that is about drawing your attention to the real authority and to where your focus really should be is on Jesus Christ and on God mm-hmm. and and to understand that all that other stuff is kind of secondary, right? Um those two are nearly identical. I mean, the nations rage and the people plot in vain, Psalm 2, 1. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, Psalm 2, verse 5. What was the Ark of the Covenant used for in Joshua 3, 1 through 6? Somebody want to look that up and read it? Because we get this reappearance of the Ark of the Covenant in Revelation. Um, in verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Um, so let's go back to Joshua 3, 1 through 6. I got it. Go ahead. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan they camped before, where they camped before crossing it. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. So what's the ark being used for? To lead the people. To lead the people, yeah. It's <laughs> So it was made by Moses. <clears throat> according to the Lord's design and covenant, His command. Designed primarily to hold what? Do you remember? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. The two tablets of the Ten Commandments. There's nothing else in it except that Moses then placed the scroll of the law beside it. So in this passage from Joshua, the ark is being carried in front of the people as they enter the promised land. Right? They're, they're, now this is, we've been in the wilderness for 40 years. God led them out of bondage in Egypt across the Red Sea. They sent in the spies. I've got to give you the, the context to, re- to remember what all happened. They sent the spies in. The spies came back, you remember? And like, there were 12 spies. Ten of them were like, ah, we're scared to death. Two of them were like, dude, this place is kind of amazing. And if God said it's ours, you know, we ought to go with that. And everybody freaked out and didn't believed that they ought to go ahead and didn't really trust in the promise that God had given them. So he said, fine, you guys are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the you crazy people have died off, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, it's not until the next generation will get to come into the promised land. And so when we get to Joshua chapter 3, finally, it's been 40 years wandering in the wilderness and all that kind of stuff, manna and quail and, you know, you're shoes did not wear out and all that kind of business. And now it's time to cross over the Jordan River and come into the promised land. And they do that by being led in by the Ark of the Covenant. And so this Ark is being carried in front of the people as they enter the promised land. And what it signifies is God's presence among them. God's leading us into the place that he has promised to give us. 
In fact, if you read a little further down in Joshua 3, it is by the power of the Ark of the Covenant that the waters of the Jordan River are parted so that the entire nation of Israel could enter the promised land, which is a terrific parallel to the parting of the Red Sea as he brought them out of Egypt, right? There's a lot of parting of waters as God brings us through them. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant is about God's promise, his presence, his leading, you know, all of those things kind of get wrapped up in it. So to have it show up again in Revelation chapter 11 is kind of important. It's this reminder that, you know, as the, as the elders in heaven, the whole church is celebrating over the, the end of everything. There's the Ark of the Covenant. They've been in God's presence all along, and the Ark of the Covenant kind of confirms that. Does that make sense? Thoughts on that? John? It kind of, when the covenant leads them into the promised land, it's also follow my commandments. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the law is up in there, right? <laughs> yeah. They did. Yeah. Do you, you may remember, right after they came out of Egypt, Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there for a long time. They all freak out and everything. But finally he comes back down and, and he gives them the covenant, right? He gives them the law and everything. And they're like, okay, we're going to do it all. We'll follow the rules. <laughs> How well does that go? And, and who was somebody was saying it. There's this whole kind of cycle in the Old Testament. Of, of, you know, we're, we're drawing close to God. We're kind of doing things his way. Things are going well. And then, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit ADOS. You know about that? Attention deficit, ooh, shiny. <laughs> you know, the people are like, ooh, there's another God. Let's go check him out. They wander off to other gods. They get this whole weird kind of um, vending machine God mentality going on. <clears throat> They're like, well, we got this God. He's got commandments and promises and all that. <gasps> this guy, if we pray to him, he'll make the crops come in. And they're like, let's just add him in. You know, and they, and they come up with this whole weird panoply of gods that they decide they're going to worship. And when they do that, things go badly. Go figure. And eventually, you know, God brings them back. And they, you know, it's this whole cycle back and forth and back and forth. And, and I think the point is that things go well when we're close to God. When we're, we're following him and trying at least to do it his way, knowing that we're going to fall short, but also knowing that there's forgiveness in that. Where are we in the cycle? How do you mean? Come. Life right now. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, it's in cycles, you know. Yeah. I, I think the answer for you is different than the answer for like okay. culture generally. I, I would say our culture generally is drawing away from God. Um, you know, you hear I, professors at the seminary have talked about the fact that we are now living in a post-Christian society. So most of us growing up grew up in a, a thoroughly Christian society. Almost everybody was a Christian, or at least they understood Christianity. They had some respect for the teachings of Christianity. Um, we're in a time, as I see it, that we're drawing away from that. That culture overall is is pushing back against Christianity and against the teachings of God, and doesn't want to hear what God has to say, and and it it means that we occupy a different position. I mean, it used to be being a Christian was kind of a a, 
a high, you know, respected position within society. And that's not the case so much anymore. Um, you know, this, we're in this thing, it's less a problem for pastors, but I think pastors are not viewed with the same kind of respect that they used to be. But, you know, think about how people view authority generally. I, you know, I was a cop in the late 1980s. I would not want to be a cop today because people view them very differently. The, the authority that they bear is, is viewed differently. That's we, what we always thought about as teachers. Yeah, yeah. Well, teachers is, is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Yes, John. I have a problem with the word cop. I wish that we would start calling the policeman. Yeah. And I wish the media would because that's a respect term. Right. A cop is not. It's a derogatory term. Oh, okay. There's a cop over there on the corner. There's a, you know, that's something that, that shows yeah. disrespect to the... Now, I never took it as a derogatory term, but I will tell you, I was a police officer. When I grew up, I grew up. It was, it was, yeah, well, <laughs> when I was a, when I was a police officer, I was in the South, so I was a police, and I was in the company of other police. <laughs> it's just how we talk down there. <laughs> but it is, and it, it means that there are some challenges now to practicing our faith. We got it pretty good in the U.S., though, guys. You know, you look around the world, though, and there are some places where it is very hard to be a Christian. Um, but, you know, I think the day is coming when, you know, I may get in trouble for saying, no, I'm not going to do a gay wedding. You know, um, look at Finland right now. If you haven't seen some of the news coming out of Finland right now, there was a, a pamphlet that was put together by the, the Lutheran Church in Finland Basically, a pro-life pamphlet um, that was, I mean, pretty straightforward, just teachings of the Bible. And the the presiding minister of the Lutheran Church in Finland, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm getting this right, has been brought up on charges for hate speech. You know, so what, I mean, what will be the consequences for me to stand up in front of the church and say that abortion is a sin. You know, when when are they going to come for me um, and arrest me because that's hate speech? Somebody will sue you. That's what's going to happen. That may happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's you can't shame. bake a cake for a gay wedding and somebody's going to sue you and try and put you out of business. So, you know, but I, I, this is God's word. It's what he says. Lynn. Early on in my ministry, I was told by a member of my congregation when we were celebrating Pro-Life Sunday, uh -huh. third Sunday of January, okay. and I used the word abortion in my sermon. I was uh -huh. told afterwards, don't use that word in your preaching. Guess what? It made me want to do all the more. Oh, yeah. Push right. <laughs> <laughs> back. Yeah. And, you know, so it's it's there. Yeah. It's there. Uh, I found out later that someone in the congregation had had an abortion and it was opening up a, a wound. Oh, yeah. But I think the wound needed to be opened because if the wound was there, then it needed to be dealt with. Well, and there's some gospel to apply to that yes, wound, exactly. too, and that's important. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, forgiveness is definitely appropriate. Right. Right, but 
I didn't know that at the time. Right. And uh, I still wanted to push back. And I don't want to open up a whole other can of worms, but sometimes <laughs> the most strongest pro-life people are those who have found forgiveness, right. having gone through right. the abortion thing. Right. And It's hard. Oh, yeah. It's, it's extremely hard. hard. And it's, it's a complicated kind of issue. It's appropriate for our times right now. Right. After what we heard about the Supreme Court did this week. Right. Right. So, it's hard to be a Christian. Yeah. Getting harder. And getting harder. Yeah. Y'all hang in there. <laughs> There's this book we should study that's a book of comfort about how your faith is well placed. It's called Revelation. <laughs> did you have a. Was there more to it? I'm sorry. I was just going to make a comment. You said how. Wonderful that it is to be in our United States. Yeah. I'm going to narrow that down. Even more wonderful it is to be in the middle of the United yes, States. That's true. I'm, I'm moved to west, uh, southwest. This ain't southwest Kansas. This is <laughs> northwest Arkansas, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or it could be extreme southwest Kansas. I know, but I feel like we're a little bit close to the university. Uh, I still think we're in a very Christian area. Yes, we are. Overall, yeah. I, I see a lot of stuff coming out of yeah. out of the university and out of Fayetteville. We've got. Uh, I think it's called maturing, and that's what happens when you're in college. Oh, you to try out things, and yeah. then you start realizing where you were. Well, it means that we are in the midst of a really ripe mission field, mm -hmm. right? There was I, one of the um, churches that I interviewed with coming out of the seminary was in Washington State. <laughs> and at some point, I don't remember who said it, but somebody referred to it as the pagan Northwest. And I said, well, that's crazy. Why do you say that? And then I looked up the demographics. In the Northwest part of the United States, 9% of the, of the population is churched. 9%. So... That's a very different number than it is around here, for sure. That comes from living in the rain all the time. Is that what it is? <laughs> I guess our mission field is it's not the part rain. of the United States, well, but part of Exactly, right. Yeah, it's not, you know, we think of missions and we think of, you know, Africa and India and China and, and yeah, sure, but here too. You know, our mission field is your neighbors, the people you work with, you know, the people you come in contact with all the time, which is kind of cool. Um, what does King Solomon do with the Ark of the Covenant? Back to the Ark. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 and 19. So, Solomon's building the temple. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And then skip down to verse 19. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So what's he up to? He's creating a place for the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies, yeah. So he's placing it in the innermost sanctuary of the temple. Um, so remember, in Moses' day, the, the temple was actually a tabernacle. It was a tent um, that was set up whenever they camped. 
So they had instructions for how to set it up and what went where and all that kind of business. Solomon built the first temple, like actual building, based on designs prepared by his father, David. Remember, toward the end of his life, David wanted to build the temple and, and Nathan, the prophet, came to him and basically said, yeah, not your job, dude. Solomon's going to do it. Um, your son will build the temple. That's not your responsibility. So Solomon built the first one based on the designs prepared by his dad. And the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, which is the most sacred part of the temple. If you look at the temple structure from the outside going in, it, it's like degrees of holiness, if you want to call it that. So, you know, the outside is just sort of the world. We, we get some of this in this description of measuring the, the temple in Revelation. The outside is the world. Then you've got the inner court, which is a little bit more holy because it's people who are able to come close. Then you get a little bit closer. It's the people drawing near. Um, and then there's, the, there's an inner temple, and then there's the Holy of Holies within that. Um, so it's the most sacred part. It represents Christ's or God's presence among us. So the temple was seen as God's home on earth, if you want to call it that. And the ark was the thing that contained his um, presence. So the Holy of Holies was the place where God's, he, it was God's dwelling place on earth. Yes, H.T. Uh, King James Version in verse 19 yeah. says, And the oracle he prepared in the house within to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So he calls it an oracle. Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, it, if you're curious, NASB is a pretty good translation to go to get the really kind of raw translation. Yeah. It's really hard to read, but it's helpful. <laughs> um, NASB says, Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So I'm not sure how that word oracle is being used oh, yeah. in King James. Just thought I'd point that yeah, out. that's interesting. King James is often kind of interesting to poke at it and see. And the oracle he prepared in the house within to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. I'm not sure. That's, that is interesting. Well, an oracle is somewhat like a soothsayer or you know, someone that professes uh, the truth. Yeah. So... Like, go to the mountaintop and ask him. Yeah, there's an oracle up there waiting yes. to answer your question. <laughs> All right, well, now you got me thinking. I'm looking at it. <laughs> now we got to go look at the Hebrew. This is why it takes us so long to get through. That's what it is. It's me <laughs> translating stuff. Yeah, so the word that they're translating as oracle is um, devere. Which actually means, yeah. So it could be translated a couple of ways. That inner sanctuary is the other way that you can translate that. And it looks like it's only, only King James that calls it oracle. Yeah. Um, it can mean the name of a temple, um, specifically the rear room or the, the small holy of holies that is typical. Um, so I think, yeah, they're using that, they're just translating that word as oracle, meaning the Holy of Holies, meaning the inner sanctuary. 
Um, which kind of makes sense, I guess, that the, you know, the most holy place would be called the oracle because that's where the word of God yeah. dwells, right? Yeah, the wisdom you. of God. Yeah, that's cool. Interesting. So what, uh, which translation would you recommend for general reading? I had a previous pastor in you know, a Lutheran church say that the New King James is a more accurate than some of the others. Uh, do you agree with that? Or is that, um, is that it's probably there? more readable, yes. So as a, as a rule of thumb, uh, the two that I go to most are English Standard Version and um, Christian Standard Bible. Um, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod used the NIV when we came out with our previous hymnal. And it was kind of a, it, was, it wasn't a thought out decision. It was just kind of, this is a prominent translation, we'll use this. And there were some issues with the translation. There were some things that they didn't quite fit with our theology. So when they came out with the current hymnal that we use, which is in 2006, the committee that put that hymnal together actually did some really deep research into several translations, and they picked the ESV as our standard within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So in worship, we use ESV, English Standard Version. English Standard Version has been around for a little while, but it's kind of based on, on some other very solid older translations, RSV among them. Um, and it's a it's fairly readable. I think NIV has the strength that it's really readable. It's smooth. It sounds beautiful. There's some decisions that were made in translation that are questionable in some places, but it's a it's a solid translation. ESV is good. It's not as readable. Um, Christian Standard Bible came out about four years ago, I guess. It's a relatively new translation um, that I think is very readable in modern language, but also is, is a pretty good translation. It does a good job of rendering the, the languages. Um, I have been impressed with CSB. Now, the joke at the seminary was that translations are for sissies, and you should... Just learn Greek. Yeah, just learn Greek and Hebrew. Right. But, but, you know, the real trick, I would say... And like I said, NASB, if you want to get to like a really wooden, kind of stilted, but very straightforward translation, NASB is great. Um, and so my encouragement is look at a bunch of them, especially on a passage that's giving you, you know, trouble understanding it. You know, I, I always call that triangulation. You know, you come at it from def different translations and you kind of get a sense of what the underlying language is. The problem with translation is that... I had a professor one time who said that every translator is a, is a traitor. And what he meant by that was translation is, there's no such thing as, as just word for word, straight up translation. Every word carries all kinds of nuances and, and other senses along with it. And so the translator has to make decisions about how best to render that in another language that may not carry all the same nuances. And, and they're traitors because the decisions that they make are, are going to be guided by what their underlying belief system is and what their underlying doctrine is. One of the reasons I like CSB is I know that one of the people on the translating committee was Lutheran. <laughs> it's, it's like, all right, well, at least they heard something from us. Um, but, you know, that's the reason that our seminaries are really intentional about teaching new pastors the languages so that we can go beyond those, you know, you've got to pick a path through the translation 
and kind of get down to the nuances and the other stuff that's in there. In our church in Green Valley, we our endowment fund used to give uh, this chunk of money every year to the Bible translator. Oh yeah, yeah. And as such, they came out and did a did a presentation to us one time, and I never realized what a task that was. We go and take a foreign language out in the middle of the jungle someplace, right. translate it in to the New Testament. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's challenging because there may not be concepts that match. Well, they even. use words that <clears throat> don't fit anything mm -hmm. they were used to, so they have to make stuff up. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. You, you maybe have heard this. You know, Martin Luther did this radical thing and translated the Bible into German. Um, and even today, the German language is greatly shaped by his translation of the Bible. German, German is what it is today because of how Luther translated the Bible, which is amazing. Yeah. So, and even that, that influence is felt even today. But, I mean, ESV, Christian Standard Bible, NIV is pretty good. There was a redo in 2011 that's less good. Um, you know, and... Truly, almost everyone that we have is a good translation. Um, they serve different purposes. The message, for example, you've probably seen that one. That was a translation done by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who's a Presbyterian pastor, was, he's passed away. Um, and one of the things that he did for his church in Bible studies was he would do his own translations of things and try and render the language into concepts and, and ideas and, and metaphors that people can make sense of. So it's a loose translation in that sense, but, but he does a pretty good job of helping you kind of see where things are going and what it actually means. But it's a translation done by one guy. <laughs> you know, so know that, I mean, it's like you've only got one traitor involved, <laughs> right? But it serves its own purpose for what it is, yeah. Uh, you got to give a plug to the Lutheran Study Bible. Lutheran Study Bible is fantastic, yeah. yes. I mean, because so many times we come across it where we say, what's going on here? Yeah. And then the study notes are really good. They are. They are very Lutheran. They notes. are. And thank you for saying that. Lutheran Study Bible, you can get it from Concordia Publishing House, is ESV translation, but then it's got notes written by pastors and, and professors at our seminaries. Um, so they're Lutheran study notes. Yeah. One thing, too, I've noticed, uh, you can speak the same language. A good example is us and Britons. Yes. I've got a friend that's British. Yeah. Okay, we both speak English. Yep. But the words don't mean the same. That's right. I mean, sometimes <laughs> you'll say something to me and just <laughs> using words and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Those words do not mean that, you know. Yeah, I'm going to put something in the boot of the car. <laughs> now, the other thing I'll say about King James, just in case, the King James translation was done in 1611, I think is the day. At that time, we had about six manuscripts of the Bible, and that's what they used. That was the source material. Um, so for the material that they had in front of them, it's a very good translation. I mean, that's exceptional. But since then, <laughs> if you look now at the number of manuscripts and partial manuscripts that we have, it's in the tens of thousands. And, and so we've got a lot more evidence to help us get back to what the original language was. And there are passages 
in the King James Version that don't take, that, and because they didn't know about them, don't take into account all this other evidence that we have. And so there are some things in the King James Version that are translated wrong simply because they didn't know. Okay? So in that respect, New King James suffers from the same problem because they're still working from the same source material. Okay. okay? Now I know King James was the Bible that Jesus used and all that, but... Um, <laughs> But, but truly, the, the translations that we have, I mean, there are some weird outliers and stuff like that, but the mainstream translations that we have, almost all of them are pretty darn good. They really are. Um, the more mainstream, the better. <laughs> so NIV, ESV, CSB, um, you know, NASB is really a, an academics one. It's, it's wooden and hard to read, but kind of helpful. So just look at lots of them. I think that's, that's my best advice. All right. What happened to the temple curtain at Jesus' death? Yeah, we don't even need to look it up. Torn in two, specifically from top to bottom. Now, do you all know about this curtain? Have you heard about this? I mean, this is not like the drapes at your house, okay? The curtain in the temple is what separated the outside of the temple from the Holy of Holies. It's what kept us apart from God's presence because you don't want to be in God's presence because you're sinful and you will die, okay? Um, you've heard the stories about the Day of Atonement. It's the one time the priest went into the Holy of Holies and they would go in there with bells on and a rope tied around their ankle. You think I'm kidding, but I'm serious. Because the terror was if the priest went in there and died because he came into God's presence, they needed to be able to pull him out. And the bells were so you could hear him moving around in there and know whether or not he had been struck dead. Okay? So this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was a woven curtain about as thick as the breadth of your hand. So you're talking about a curtain that's, you know, four inches thick. This is serious stuff. And when Jesus died on the cross, this thing ripped in half from top to bottom. And the top to bottom is important because it's from heaven to earth, opening up access to the Holy of Holies so that we can come before God without having to have the priest as an intercessor because Jesus is our intercessor. He's opened up access. That's huge. Okay. Uh, what is this? Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> what is the significance of what happened to the temple curtain? <laughs> It signifies that we once again have direct access to God through Jesus Christ, that the separation from God has been ended. So, what does that mean for us? And if somebody would look up Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Thank you. So what does it mean for us that this curtain has been torn in two and we have access to God? We get to enter his presence. Yeah, it's a get to. So you know with certainty that Jesus is our mediator, that we can come into God's presence with confidence that our sins are not held against us, 
Without Jesus, you could never come into God's presence. Right? Because of our sinfulness. I mean, that's the whole thing about the priest going in on the Day of Atonement, that, that fear of him going in there, was that he's stepping in a sinful man into God's presence and God can't abide that sin and therefore is going to be struck dead. Um, but with Jesus, we're justified and so we can approach God again. It changes everything. Pastor. I thought from time to time, especially when you hear that passage of the curtains torn into the terror that must have been for those in the temple oh, yeah. at that time. Yeah. When that thing tears, that just didn't happen. Yeah. It never happened. Right. And that thing tears, something's going on. Yeah. Something big's going on. Something big's going on. Right. And that opened up that holy of holy place. Right. They had to be hightailing it out of there. Don't look right at it. Yeah. So <laughs> here's the flip side of it, because that, that catches the terror of the whole thing. Why is it exciting <laughs> to see the temple of God opened in 1119, in, back in Revelation? Yeah. So in 1119, God's temple in heaven was opened... The Ark of His Covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail. But, but what it means is, we're seeing it in Revelation. Remember, this is the end of time, right? So when we're seeing it there, it means that the symbolic ripping of the curtain that happened when Jesus died, which basically sent this message that access to God has been opened up through Christ. Now, in Revelation, it means, ah, this has become completely real. Remember we talked about the now and not yet? <laughs> you know, we, We've got this access to God now, but not yet. And on the last day, it all becomes now. And so in Revelation, when we see God's temple in heaven being opened, it means, ah, that symbolic ripping of the, of the curtain has become real and we will truly be in God's presence. Let's get... Yeah. Uh, Pastor, it just occurred to me that you know, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant they were told to stay away yeah. a certain distance. Yes. And I, if memory serves me correctly, one person actually died because he touched. Yeah, yeah, it was a different thing where they were moving the ark or something, and it was about to fall, and the guy touched right. it and it killed him. Yeah. But now we are actually able to taste yeah. Christ through his body and blood. Right, so, right. I mean, we're not told to stay away now. We're yeah, we're invited. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good point. All right. Uh, question number 11. Using, any, I don't know why. I, we'll get into it, I guess. Using any other version than the King James Version. <laughs> what dimension of time is used to describe the Lord Almighty in 11 verse 17? And I'm going to go use the King James just to find out why the heck they said not to. <laughs> I can't explain it. <laughs> so how, what, what dimension of time is used to describe the Lord Almighty? 11, 17. Who is and who was. Who is and who was. Um, 
what tenses are we getting there then? Past and present. Past and present. Here's why they say not to use King James, by the way. King James says, in very King James fashion, um, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. Throws future tense in there. Um, so, who is and who was, past and present, King James says, which art and wast and art to come. The original Greek says, haon kai haen, who is and who was. And it doesn't include the future tense. The 1550 <laughs> Stephanus text shows it. The 1881 Westcott Hort and my Greek version don't. So the newer ones that just say who is and who was are based on better manuscript evidence than what the King James had. Same thing we were just talking about. Verse 8 of chapter 1, though, does have the who is, there you who go. was, right. and who is to come. He answers the next question for oh, us. Okay. Thank you. No, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. And sure enough, that is in the Greek. Um, haon kai haen kai haerkomenos. So yeah, it gets the future in there as well. Um, so what does the omission in 1117 suggest about the coming of the Christ? He's already coming, he's here, present. Yeah, yeah. So 1117, the opening of the, of the uh, temple... You know, the, the four elders, um, the 24 elders have fallen on their faces. They're worshiping God who is and who was because we don't have to worry about the future anymore because it's here, right? So, so we talk about, we, this, this is the now and not yet again, okay? Because it's the not yet has arrived and is now. So in 1117, as the heavens are open and everything, we don't have to worry about future because future's here. Does that make sense? It is the coming of Christ is a is a done deal, a certainty that has come to pass. Do you have a picture in your mind's eye of the coming of Christ? And share some of that visual with us if you do. Bring it on. <laughs> What's it going to be like? It's going to be bright and beautiful. Bright and beautiful. That's cool. <clears throat> I thought it was going to be cloudy. No, no, he's coming on a cloud. He's coming on a cloud. <laughs> Anything else? It's like an explosion of light. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have this really cool vision or image of Christ the Victor, like it is in this mosaic at uh, Fort Wayne Seminary. Okay. Um, there's a mosaic artwork piece or whatever um, on one of the walls in, in one of the, the classrooms or in one of the buildings. Uh huh. It's really cool. You see Christ coming, and uh, he's got the, I don't remember exactly what he's holding in his hand, but it's very cool. Coming. It's coming out, of the, out of heaven. Yeah. Uh, to, to it's like victory day, right? Yeah. I like you said Christ the victor. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. All right. Any, we actually finished a whole lesson. Um, thoughts, comments, observations, last words? Is there also the sound of trumpets when you're That's what I read in the book, yeah. Yeah, sound of trumpets. 
Yeah. This Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way that he went. And yeah, somewhere else it says with the sound of trumpets and, and a, or the blast of trumpets or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be loud and bright. Awesome. Maybe at the end Yeah, no kidding. So, y'all heard about these tornadoes that rolled through Kentucky, and uh, it was bad. There was a tornado that was on the ground over 200 miles. Oh, is it that long now? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, there was an interview I heard this morning with a woman whose um, barn was destroyed, but her livestock and her family were okay. But they were, they were in an upper or an inner hallway or something, but they could see the barn being destroyed. And, and they were talking with her on the news, and she said, y'all, they say it sounds like a train. It does not sound like a train. It sounds like an angry dinosaur. <laughs> so, like, all right. Um, again, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. is children's program. Next week, 8 a.m., 1045 Christmas Eve, Christmas Day services. We got Christmas Eve service at 7 p.m., which is candlelight service. Um, that's Friday. I'm trying to get the days right. Christmas Day is Saturday. We got a 10 a.m. service on Christmas Day. We got services on the 26th. The usual times. I expect it will be a low Sunday, but <laughs> so to speak. Um, so I look forward to seeing you all at all of those. Um, let's let's close with a prayer we'll be there all afternoon gracious Lord God Heavenly Father we give you thanks and praise for this day for your word um, and mostly for your promises and the faith that you have given us in your son Jesus Christ um, as we go forth from here out into the world we pray that you would guide and lead us that others might see your son in us and come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved um, guide us in all that we do that it might be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.